Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And don't miss our one-minute Exit Coach Tip of the Day on ExitCoachRadio.com. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Thanks for listening. This segment of the show is brought to you by Hall and Associates. They're a CPA firm here in Orange County and features Jeff Verdon, who's joining us from the Jeff M. Verdon Law Group. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I, I have been wanting to have you on the show for quite a while. You have some very interesting topics for us to talk about, and there's been a lot of things changing. We're going to talk about estate planning and asset protection planning and some of the things that, that you do with that. But first, Jeff, give us a sense of your background. Sure. I uh, came out here from Miami, Florida and passed the California bar after attending law school and went back and got a master's in taxation and back in Boston, spent the blizzard of, of 78 back there and uh, decided to come out back out to the warm climate. Uh, I started a traditional trust in the state's practice for about six or seven years and then I had my epiphany. I did some estate planning for a very high-risk medical group, obstetrician, gynecologist, and I learned that, that uh, when they retire after they deliver their last baby, the statute of limitations for malpractice doesn't even begin to run until that baby turns the age of 18, the age of majority, plus two additional years. So you can imagine being 85 years old and on the hook for potential civil liability for over 20 years, and that was just unacceptable. The most, the longest tail policy they can buy from their insurance carrier is five years. So that was my first foray into what we now call asset protection planning. That's amazing. I had no idea. I mean, what? How do you protect against something like that? Well, we, we we're going to find out some strategies, techniques, fortresses, things that you can do to to build that protection mechanism around your your assets, right? Well, the biggest lesson I learned from that exercise was as people acquire wealth, they are, target, they are targets of lawsuits. And if they don't build the firewall protection into their planning, uh, generally when they do their estate plans or meet with their business lawyers and then they get sued, there's nothing they can do to protect themselves. So what we do in our firm is when we sit down to plan somebody's estate or represent a business owner, we want to make sure at that time when their financial seas are calm, that we build in these protections, which we can legally do, because after the fact, it's too late. And then if something were to happen, they've got the uh, leverage to be able to negotiate themselves out of that claim without getting wiped out. Uh, and especially important for a lot of our audience members who are out there thinking, I want to sell my business in the next few years. Well, while you're a business owner, you're certainly a target. But you're not as big a target as when you have a, a bucket full of cash from the sale of that business. And you really need to think about that in advance, right? That's right. The, the business owner who sells their business to a buyer and gets their bucket of cash and they go off into the sunset are often surprised to find out that they get served with a lawsuit by the buyer when the buyer has run the business into the ground and then alleges that the seller misrepresented the state of the business, the financials and so forth, and now they're dealing with lawsuits. Where if they took that cash and they legally and safely protected it in an offshore asset protection trust or some other device, then there's not as great of an incentive of the buyer to sue the seller because the chances of the buyer recovering are slim to none. But like you say, you can't do that once you get the, the subpoena or the notice that you're being sued. 
it's the house is on fire, and you're not going to get fire insurance, and you're not going to get asset protection. That's right. And what I try to do is educate the legal community and the CPA community in discussing these subjects with their clients before the fact when they're having the discussion about the sale of their business or they're wrapping up the transaction. Do it at that time when there's no risk, and that way they're ready for something that might happen. What's the usual reaction to that? Do they are, are a lot of people just saying, "Well, that's not going to happen to me," or or, or they are? You have a lot of stories you can tell them to to illustrate the fact, right? Well, the best way to illustrate the risk is to tell stories, and I think that the two thousand and eight two thousand and nine recession really sobered up the community into realizing that their wealth is uh, is not going to necessarily be there when they need it. Uh, there were a lot of people that were hurt by the recession. And now they're much more uh, willing to look at strategies. They've had, they've seen friends and neighbors and business associates uh, really hurt by the recession. Uh, people today are suing their relatives, their business partners, their friends of 20 years. Uh, there are so many attorneys looking for cases, and there are so many opportunities. Uh, they know that when they glom onto a defendant with assets, the the defendant's going to settle because the cost of litigation is so expensive. Well, if you reverse that or you, you change that trend to where you build these firewalls, you remove the economic incentive for a person to, to sue you, and therefore, for a relatively nominal amount of money, and very quickly, you can make that case go away. And that's we try to get the parties to the bargaining table very early and quickly in the process if one of our clients is sued and uh, and then get the case settled so both parties can move on with their lives. So if I hear you correctly, one of the main reasons for all of this asset protection planning is just to slow everything down instead of being able to attach assets right away or, or move right to lawsuits. The the opposing counsel is going to look at this and go, wow, we, these guys have done a good job um, putting up some firewalls here. So let's maybe we should back off and just talk about what you know what we can come to uh, as far as a reasonable uh, resolve on this. Well, that's the effect, but you have to understand that a lot of people would not be in business or in a profession taking on the risk that they take on. For example, there's probably many medical uh, specialists that wouldn't practice their trade if they couldn't protect themselves. And insurance isn't the way to do it. Insurance covers you if you fall off the roof, but not necessarily if you hit the ground. So. There are businesses and professionals that probably would not be providing society with the kinds of services and expertise they have if there weren't an alternative way to protect themselves. So let's talk about the the kind of the shallow end to the deep end of some of these strategies briefly, Jeff. Uh, what's one of the first things that people should should think about having if uh, looking and see if they have for protecting? Well, when I sit down with a client to go over their estate plan and I have their financial statement in front of me. You know, I want to ask them what keeps them up at night because estate planning is a very personal thing. Many clients don't even realize they have exposure. So we've created a lawsuit exposure test, which we administer to our prospective clients. People can get it on our website if they want to check out their own lawsuit exposure. If they score on the rather high end of the answer key, then they've got exposure. But I'm amazed to see how much liquidity a person might have at sitting in their living trust. People have this this mistaken notion that if they have assets in a revocable living trust, the assets are protected. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. And even their lawyers don't tell them this. We had a case many years ago where the husband of a wife, a second marriage, he got into an accident in the state of Colorado, every serious car accident. Under Colorado law, the head of household was liable for the damages. Well, the head of household was the wife because she had all the money. 
Uh, he didn't have any money, and she wound up getting stuck with the with the liability for the accident. So each state you go into, the laws are different. So I want to make sure, first and foremost, when we build an estate plan, we build the asset protection into the plan. And that way, if something happens, they, they, they've got their bases covered. Then we build on top of that the estate tax planning, income tax planning, and so forth. But protecting the assets, to me, is the first and foremost uh, step. And, and the liquid assets are the most vulnerable and therefore the easiest to protect. Now, your firm developed something called the uh, Have Your Cake and Eat It Too Trust, right? The yeah. HICIT? <laughs> Is that what you call it? The- I'd like to take credit for it, but I can't. The, tr- the trust was actually part of a private letter ruling that came out in 2009. But when the laws, when the gift law, tax laws changed, they increased the gift ex- exemption to $5 million from the previous $1 million. Mm-hmm. We were all ecstatic about the ability to move $5 million out of one's estate, $10 million per couple. And over 25 or 30 years, all that appreciation escapes estate tax. Mm -hmm. But then I sobered up when I began to realize that people just got hammered by the 2009 recession, 2008 recession. No one was going to transfer assets to an irrevocable trust because they might need those assets back one day. So I'm reading this private letter ruling, and the ruling basically allows a taxpayer to set up an irrevocable trust in certain states like Nevada, Alaska, Delaware, transfer assets into the trust as a completed gift. And then if they later need or want those assets back, they get donor's remorse, they don't like their grandkids, whatever might happen in the future that they can't predict, the trustee of that trust can add them back as a beneficiary, and now they've got the ability to reclaim those gifts. So it creates a lot more flexibility in the planning process. You may remember back in 2011 when the law was became into effect, we had two years to make these transfers before the gift tax exclusion was going to revert back to a million dollars. Well, as it turned out, the very 11th and a half hour of 2012, Congress has said on a lifetime basis. So we did a lot of these flexible gift trusts or high set trusts, but they serve other functions. They they serve the ability to protect assets against lawsuits, and there's some tremendous estate planning benefits. So someone who's looking to do some estate planning can use this multi-purpose trust, the high set trust, to gain uh, a great deal of advantage over the traditional gift trust. So, and in my experience, a, a lot of people would do something like that if they had just that. If they if they realized, you know, I'm okay with moving assets over, but I just don't want to never have access to them again because things change in life. My grandkids might be terrible people down the road. I think things can happen down the road, and I just want to make sure that at some point I have some kind of recourse um, that that passes muster with the government that I can still have access back to those some of those assets as, as recourse. And in a traditional trust, you either have it like a living trust. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, a living trust, you still control. It's your trust, right? You're, you're the trustees while you're living. A revocable living trust, you still control, but that's not the kind of a trust that I'm talking We're about. We're talking about a different kind of trust. This right? is a trust that's designed to, to move the asset out of the estate. If the estate makes the gift of $5 million and it grows at 10% a year over 30 years, that's almost $90 million of value that's been removed. Plus, it has asset protection benefits and there's a lot of estate tax savings. But if you later need that money back under traditional gift trust, you can't get it back. So our trust provides that flexibility. And as a result, we've done a lot of these trusts over the last three or four years. Now, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about that and some stories and tips and ideas for our listeners. Jeff, I'm talking with Jeff Verdun of the Jeff Jeffrey M. Verdun Law Group, LLP. We'll be right back after this message.
You're listening to ExitCoachRadio.com, the show for age 50-plus business owners. We're interviewing over 250 professional advisors for their tips, ideas, and precautions so you can be well-planned. We upload new 20-minute interviews and one-minute highlights every day at ExitCoachRadio.com. Come listen for a minute. Olive Crest is a local nonprofit organization dedicated to preventing child abuse, treating and educating at-risk children, and preserving the family one life at a time. For 40 years, Olive Crest has provided safe, loving homes to at-risk youth throughout Southern California, Nevada, and the Pacific Northwest. There are many ways you can help, including volunteering or becoming a foster parent. Go to www.olivecrest.org or call 1-800-550-CHILD to learn more. That's 1-800-550-CHILD. Call today. Welcome back, friends. Just a reminder that we've interviewed dozens of advisors on a wide variety of topics, and you'll find all of their interviews and highlights online at exacoachradio.com or on iTunes at itunes.exacoachradio.com. And I'm talking with Jeffrey Verdon, and we're talking about the the wide world of protecting your assets. And, uh, you know, for our business listeners out there, uh, what are some of the things that they can do to to protect some of their assets, Jeff, before they get sued or in some kind of a problem? Well, the last few years, we've seen a big trend in businesses being sued, wage and hour claims and and product liability claims and labor issues and employee claims. And the problem is that most businesses keep too many assets in their operating companies. So what we like to do with a client when their financial seas are calm is take the business and strip out the operating assets, the furnitures, fixtures, equipment, and so forth, and either transfer it or sell it to an LLC or a trust and then lease it back so at the end of the day, the corporation doesn't really have a lot in the way of assets, and therefore they're not a particularly attractive target to a lawsuit. Then if they do get sued, they can generally negotiate a much more favorable settlement because there isn't anything in the corporation that's really going to be noteworthy for a, a plaintiff to get. And that's what a lot of this type of uh, planning is, is to try to make a an easily attachable asset a difficult or one some people say a a beautiful asset turning it into an ugly asset (laughs) if you will what are some of the other things that that business owners can can think about these days when they're thinking about protecting themselves well a lot of our clients are setting up what's called captive insurance companies if uh, for risk management and also for some tax benefits and asset protection if you have a business and you know if you have your insurance premiums or liability insurance premiums are going up Oftentimes, you can unbundle that, that coverage by setting up your own insurance company. All the major Fortune 500 companies have these. They're like a, a, a small insurance company that's, that's authorized under Section 831B of the tax code. A business can set up the, corporate, the insurance company. Uh, their businesses can pay premiums to the insurance company for certain coverages that they're either currently uninsured for. If they are insured, they can increase their deductible thereby decreasing their premiums to their major carrier, and then they can gap that coverage through their captive. Monies paid to the captive as premiums are deductible by the company, so it's a big tax savings, and the first $1.2 million of premiums earned in the captive are income tax-free. And the best thing about the captive is at the end of the policy period, if there are no claims, those reserves become an underwriting profit and can be taken out of the captive at capital gains or qualified dividend rates. So it's a very uh, effective and, and becoming more and more popular as long as it's not abused. The, 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 this is a structure that some people will, 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 will implement and then begin to abuse it by, by 
really overreaching, and it should not be done that way. It can be done very effectively as long as they follow the rules. Yeah, there's always going to be promoters out there that are that are overstating the benefits and understating the costs. And, and this is not something that isn't, you know, it's not cheap. You know, it's it's not inexpensive, but for the right situation. It, it does wonders, doesn't it? Well, to give your listeners an idea, to set up a captive by a legitimate company, you're probably going to spend in the neighborhood of fifty to sixty thousand dollars. But if you're able to put six or seven hundred thousand dollars a year in premiums into the captive, and you get a fifty percent deduction, give or take, the tax savings more than than pays for it. Plus, you get tremendous insurance premium savings because by increasing the deductibles on your coverage and gapping that coverage with your captive. And if you think about all the insurance coverage you have, most people rarely get sued or have to use it anyway. So they're paying this premium. It's going to the insurance company and never seeing it again. So it's a way to to self-insure for risks that typically are not that significant. Great potential tool. Another one to look at. Put it on the list and and check it out. Call someone like yourself and check it out. What about offshore trust versus onshore? What's what's the climate now for that? Well, there's a big big push uh, to discredit offshore planning. You know, the, we do asset protection trusts offshore because we find we get more protection offshore than we do onshore. Well, and, give us an example of why that is. Well, when you set up a trust, for example, in the Cook Islands, and you, tr- you transfer your money, uh, you can leave your money in the States, and then when there's a threat of a lawsuit, the trustee can move that money to Switzerland where it can sit in the same kind of investments or cash that it was sitting in the United States. Once those assets are 10 miles outside of New York Harbor, there's no longer the power of a U.S. court or a judge to tie those assets up. We call that jurisdictional arbitrage. When you set up a trust in the United States, each state has their own sets of laws. So unless you live in one of the states like Nevada or Alaska or Delaware, if you're a California resident setting up a Nevada trust, asset protection trust, you may not get the benefit of that trust because you don't reside in Nevada. So our clients want more certainty, and we've been setting these trusts up since 1990. We have never had a client audited because they had an offshore trust. Why? The IRS doesn't care that you go offshore. You just have to tell them about it. So we make sure all the tax compliance is done. The IRS knows about it, but it becomes a very, very difficult structure to to break in the event of a future claim, and that was never um, better illustrated than during the uh, SNL crisis back in the late 80s, early 90s. The government went to, to the Cook Islands and New Zealand trying to break these trusts for people who had set them up, and they were unsuccessful. Now... There are people that try to game the system, that try to set these trusts up after the fact, which they're not to be set up that way. And they're, they're very difficult to get set up in the first place because all the various agencies you have to go through vet the clients very carefully. But there, you know, if a person sets up a Cook Islands trust 15 years ago and then becomes a bad person or becomes a criminal, uh, at 15 years ago when he set the trust up, no one knew about that or he wasn't a criminal at the time. So oftentimes these Cook Islands trusts get a bad name because at the time that they were set up, the person didn't have any claims. Something later happens in his life and now they can't break through the trust. And uh, as was illustrated in the New York Times article back in December, they were referencing people who became bad people, but they were not bad people when they set up their trust. I see. And, you know, what I've heard about some of these things is that, like Nevis, for instance, is that some of these jurisdictions... Uh, just don't allow anybody to come down there and, and you have to get admitted or you have to go through some hoops to go down there and actually inst- instigate a lawsuit against Nevis. And then I've heard things like you, know, you don't have the same punitive damages and, and things like that in some of those jurisdictions. So that's what you're talking about, jurisdictional arbitrage. This is not a tax dodge or uh, hiding money. It's basically using those jurisdictions that might be uh, little, you know, leveling the playing field. Right, for, for the client. That's right. Most people realize who have accumulated wealth, who have been through a lawsuit or have seen somebody they know 
been through a lawsuit. They don't want any part of it. So the more difficult they can make it for someone to reach their assets, the better chance they're going to have to get out of that lawsuit quickly and uh, and, and with um, a minimal amount of cost. There's over 100 million lawsuits filed in this country every year. So people understand how litigious a society we are. That's amazing. Well, uh, Jeff, you're a wealth of information. We're going to run out of time here, but before we do, I want to promote your book that you've come out with. It's called Estate Planning for Women Only, and it's available on Amazon and Kindle, right? And That's correct. We'll put a link to it on our website at exacoachradio.com so people, our listeners can find it easily. And what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you if they want to talk with you and do you offer a free consultation or, or something like that? They can call uh, area code 949 333 8150 or go on our web- website. We have a lot of rich information about the various work that we do. We write client alerts, which they can pull down and read from our website. They can get the lawsuit exposure test, and that's www.j, as in Jeff, M as in Mike, V as in Victor, law, law.com. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for coming on. It's been a lot of fun and good to see you. And uh, we'll hope to have you come back again and talk more, you know, more deeply about some of these things now that we've got a good, uh, good overview on what you do, Jeff. Thanks very much. Thank you. You're listening to ExitCoachRadio.com, the information station for age 50 plus business owners where we're interviewing over 250 top advisors for their best tips, ideas, and precautions so you can be well-planned. We upload new one-minute tips every day. ExitCoachRadio.com. Come listen for a minute. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio. 